Uh, but I am thankful I get to be with you this morning. Uh, I love these opportunities. I really do. Uh, I, I, get, I get encouraged, and I get heckled, and I love it all the same. It doesn't matter either way to me. But would y'all do this for me? Would you go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5? Mark chapter 5, and um, when you get there, turn to the 21st verse of Mark chapter 5, and then we're going to open up in prayer this morning. Because I, like Pastor Malcolm said, I need all the help I can get. (laughs) So we're going to go to the one who supplies that kind of help. So would you join me in prayer this morning? My Father in heaven, Lord, we are so thankful. Thankful for this church. Thankful for these these members that come together and rally and are, are, are intentional with how they worship you. Not with just their time, but also of their giving. And Lord, we just thank you so much for this time you've given us this morning to get deep in your word. Lord, I pray you bless and move in only a way that you can. And Lord, we're trusting you to speak to hearts this morning. Lord, hide me behind the cross. Lord, I pray you help me remember all those things I studied for. And Lord, you bring all those things to memory. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. If you take notes, and you should have had some outlines, obviously, uh, that's how most of you know when Pastor Malcolm is not here. You look at the outline. and said, we got a guest this morning. Uh, I don't care. I don't care how, I, I, don't, I, get, I gave up. All right? I used to try to mimic his outline to try to throw you off the scent. I can't. It's something, even the paper, you're like, the paper feels different. You know, <laughs> like some of y'all just know when he's not here. Uh, but this morning, if, if, if you'll just join along with me, if you take notes, and I hope you do, uh, this morning we would talk about faith. Uh, I, I would be willing to believe and bet that we're a pretty transparent church. I think there's some people that would honestly admit that there's been a situation in your life where you felt like God was never going to show up. You thought, God, you, you going to do something? Maybe, maybe you have been the kind of person in here who felt like God was running a little late, kind of like when, when he showed up four days late at Lazarus' tomb, and they thought, if you would just got here a little sooner... Everything would have been okay. Maybe you're like most men, and men, I'm going to pick on you because I is one, okay? But we like to fix things, right? We're fixers. And, and most of us in this room, especially if you're married, you come home and your wife begins to talk to you about her day and problems she's encountered, and you, being the, the, the superior thinker of the relationship, begin to offer your advice on how you would fix what was going on. You know what the problem is? She don't want you to fix it, does she? No, she just wants to vent. She just wants to talk and let you listen. But we, we like to fix things. When we see things that are broken, we try, to, we try to fix things. And most of us in this room, not even men, but just people, we are fixers by nature. When there's a problem, we're going to do everything we can do to try to fix that problem. But there's a situation sometimes that's beyond our control. And we do everything we know to do. We've exhausted all of our resources. We've done everything we could think of. And it seems like at the very last moment is when we finally come to God and say, God, please help. In this morning's uh, story, we're going to see two people that come to that very place. Jesus is going to be swarmed by people. But, with, but within all these people, we see two Two characters rise out of this story. So if you would join me in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. It says, And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogues, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, 
and she, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed and thronged him, pushed against him, slowed him down. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had was nothing better, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus come in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? Now I love the disciples in this response. The disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee. You see all these people? And you're asking, Who touched you? Like, you I mean, this comment, like, Jesus, come on. And so... Verse 32, and he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeing the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make you this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, but they laughed at his face. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talithakamai, which is being interpreted damsel, I say unto you, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for, the, for she was at the age of twelve years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given to her to eat. Now, What I love about this story is we see two people introduced. We see Jairus and we see the woman. Two completely different people, opposite ends of the spectrum, but we find them at the very feet of Jesus, both desperately needing something, both desperately needing to get close to him. All these people are pushing and crowding around Jesus, yet these two are the ones who slip in. And we know that Jairus, by reading this story, was the president of the synagogue. He was the overseer of the synagogue. Now, here's what you need to think about when you think of a synagogue. Think of like a community center. They would have school here. They would have worship here. They would host prayer meetings here. They would host meals here. In some cities, they would even use this almost like a hotel for travelers. They would host travelers in a synagogue. There was a lot going. Court would be held at the synagogue. This was like a hub in the middle of the city. Which explains a lot of why, would, why Jesus liked to hang around synagogues. Because he knew there would be people there. And so, matter of fact, the very first time you see him after his birth, you see him at 12 years old, and where does his parents find him? At the synagogue teaching. He's teaching at the synagogue. And matter of fact, in the New Testament, we find him no, no less than 10 different times at the synagogue. In Matthew chapter 4, it tells us that he went through Galilee teaching in the synagogues. And the synagogue was a very important place, and Jairus was a very important man. Very important man. And Jesus loved to hang around the synagogues. In fact, some of you might remember in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, where Jesus cast out demons from a man inside of a synagogue. Guess whose synagogue he did this at? Jairus's. 
So no doubt, Jairus already knew about Jesus, had already seen some of the things he had done, had known the reputation of Jesus. And so when his daughter became sick, he knew what he had to do. In verse 22, it tells us that he sought out Jesus. And whether or not we believe that, or he believed that Jesus was who he said he was to be, Jairus was desperate. You know, people get serious about faith when they're desperate, don't they? People get serious about Jesus when they're desperate. And so because he's desperate, he goes and he seeks out Jesus, and we find him falling down at the feet of Jesus. He fell at his feet. Now, you can see the desperation here. How many fathers in this room do I have? Fathers of little girls. Now, I don't care if you're 60 years old and you've got, you got a 40-year-old little girl. She's still your little girl. Okay, fathers of little girls in this room. Okay, I, I'm one of you, okay? Now, now look at Mark 23. Besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. Think about this. This daddy falling at the feet of Jesus. My little girl is dying. It's a desperation. My little girl is sick and she's dying. See, desperation causes you to do things you would not normally do. He was desperate. And as they begin to walk, something begins to happen. It says the crowd begin to throng him, begin to push, begin to come. Because remember, Jesus was famous. He was a miracle man. And people always had needs. So they come around Jesus to try to get their fix, to try to get their miracle. And they're slowing him down. Now, now again, you're a desperate daddy trying to get to your sick little girl. And you just sought out the only man you think can help you. And you fell at his feet saying, Jesus, please come. My little, my little girl is dying And now as you begin to walk, people are slowing Jesus down, putting him to a crawl pace. They're stopping him in his tracks. Imagine you are this daddy. Come on. We got to go. Come on. Get out the way. Come on. Can you imagine the the just the excitement? We got to go. Jesus, quit slowing down. Quit stopping. Come on. I mean, if I'm a daddy, I'm serious. My little girl is dying. And in the middle of this crowd of people, a woman sneaks in. And this woman crawls in and touches Jesus. And he stops. And he says, who touched me? And disciples begin, Jesus, you see the people. People are touching you everywhere, Jesus. We talk about who touched you. And it says, because he knew something has happened. The healing power had left his body. And so we see two different people engaging Jesus at the same exact time. We see Jairus. He's a man of honor, a man of prestige, a man of wealth, and he has a 12-year-old girl who's dying. And then we see a woman who's so unimportant, we don't even know her name. And she's living in shame and seclusion, and she's got a disease for 12 years. Both these people... Now, track with me. Both these people had to leave something behind in order to come to Jesus. Let me break it down. For the man, if you're taking notes, here you go. For the man, here's some things he had to leave behind. The first thing we see he had to leave behind is prejudice. His prejudice. See, he's a Jewish man in a very Jewish community, and he's up in ranks in the Jewish community. And if we read the scriptures, we realize the Jewish people were not the most receptive when it comes to Jesus, especially the religious people. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, all those people kind of didn't like Jesus. And, and, and Jairus would have been associated with all of them. 
They were critical of Jesus. Eventually, here's what would happen. On a Sunday, they're crying, Hosanna. And on a Friday, they're crying, crucify him. Their views of Jesus would flip-flop. Some would follow him. Some would leave him. To be a leader in the Jewish community and to make such a bold and public move as to come and seek out the man who is considered to be a vigilante, a man who's trying to, uh, to create his own kingdom here on earth, to make such a, bu- a public move to come and fall at his feet was huge for Jairus to do. Because all he's been taught and told was this man was a rebel. This man claims to be the son of God. This man claims to be the Messiah. This man claims to be the one who fulfills all the prophecy. And no doubt, Jairus had to lay aside all that prejudice. Because why? Because he's desperate. And he comes to Jesus. I wonder in here, maybe some people have been told a lot of things about who Jesus is. But the, the problem is, there's been a lot, of, a lot of people's opinions mixed into that. And you're going to have to lay aside some of that in order to get real with Jesus. You're going to lay aside some of that prejudice, some of that misunderstanding, some of that false teaching in order to get to Jesus. But not only had he lay aside his prejudice, he had to lay aside his pride. Pride is one of those diseases that makes everyone sick except for the person who has it. (laughs) Have you ever met somebody so full of pride and arrogance? It just, you're like, ugh. The one-upper, you know what a one-upper is? Okay, I always make fun of our, our, of our girls and, and TSM because it, uh, sometimes I feel like I had to one-up each other in prayer requests. Like, y'all pray for my, my grandma's dog. She's 12 years old and she's sick. And somebody, y'all pray for my great-grandmother's cat. She's 20. All right, and you're like, this isn't a contest. You know, but they always have to feel like they one-up each other. Here's the thing. Pride is dangerous because it can keep you from getting real. Because in order to get real, you have to become humble. There's a story about a, name, a man named Uncle Zeke. And Uncle Zeke was notorious for being somebody who would never admit when he was wrong. And Uncle Zeke one day walked into a blacksmith shop and he walked onto this sawdust floor and he saw this horseshoe lying on the sawdust floor and it was black. But what he didn't realize is just before he got in there, the blacksmith had been hammering on this thing, and this thing was being stubborn, and he hammered on it for so long that all the heat, it didn't look like it was hot anymore, but it was still smoldering hot. It was black, and the blacksmith got frustrated and threw it on the floor. Uncle Zeke walked in. He saw this this horseshoe lying on the floor. He picked it up, and he dropped it real quick. The blacksmith said, it's hot, ain't it, Zeke? He said, no, just don't take me very long to look at a horseshoe. So (laughs) here's the thing. Pride. Pride is dangerous. What would people think of Jairus seeing him at the feet of Jesus? He would have to swallow every bit of prejudice and pride in order to come to Jesus. Some of us in this room need to swallow some pride. See, what happened is Jairus got to a point where he realized he couldn't do anything else. He had exhausted all of his resources. He's exhausted all of his networking abilities, and he come up empty. See, if you want to unpack it the real way, he's saying, I've done and took, took everything the world had to offer me, and it left me bankrupt. And so out of desperation, he humbled himself, and he came to the feet of Jesus, and he says, Jesus, my little girl is dying. I wonder how many of us hide our faith because of our reputation or because of our position in a company or because of whatever it might be. I wonder what would happen if we actually humbled ourselves, swallowed our pride, and fell at the feet of Jesus. And he said, Lord, I've been pretending a long time like I got this figured out, but I've tried everything, and I've done everything, and I just come up empty every time. So, Lord, right now, I'm just coming to you saying I'm bankrupt spiritually, emotionally, financially. God, I need you. 
What would happen if we swallowed our pride and just come to the feet of Jesus? And then the third thing we see is this man had to put aside his piety. What does that mean? His self-righteousness, his religiosity. In the church, you're going to find a lot of religious people. Lots of religious people. The most dangerous people in the church are religious people. Because they just live off of what Mama and Papa has told them their whole life. Mama said, cleanliness is next to godliness. Where's that in the Bible? Somewhere. No, it ain't. But we believe. We've been taught so many things that are false. And we, we, ta- we hold on to these things. So no doubt this man Jairus, growing up in this Jewish community under the Jewish influence of the high priest and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, would have had these, these false ideologies. And here's what Jesus would do. Jesus would come into the community and the Pharisees would get angry at him because Jesus would not follow their traditions. Jesus, I'm not here to follow tradition. And they would get angry at Jesus. You, you, can't, you can't do that on the, on the, on the Sabbath. You're you healing people on the Sabbath. They were angry because people were able to walk on the Sabbath because of their tradition. This man had to lay aside all of that, all of what he thought religion looked like, all of what he's been taught. To come to Jesus means you give up your religion. It means you give up your self-righteousness, and you simply fall at the feet of Jesus. Jesus, I've, I've been doing things my way for a long time. I'm tired. Please help me. Now on the flip side of this equation, we see the woman, the unnamed woman. Now what did the woman have to give up in order to come to Jesus? Well, we see she had to give up some of her shame. See, in Leviticus, if you read in Leviticus, you see that this particular disease that this woman had, this blood disease, made her unclean. And she would be handled like a leper. She couldn't be around people. She couldn't be around her family. She would have to be out, uh, outside of the city gates. She couldn't touch anyone. Can you imagine what it's like to go 12 years without a touch? Without a hug? Without, without greeting your family? Without knowing, not, not being able to associate with them? She couldn't go to temple worship? She had this shame. And she carried around this burden of shame. Now, I want to speak into this for a second because some of us in this room are living with shame. Some things that's, been hap- that's happened to us in our past, some regret, some skeletons in the closet, some things we are not happy about. And that thing has become like a weight around your neck and you're too afraid to get real with Jesus because you're afraid that what, as, what, what, what you know about yourself, other people might know too. And so that shame has been holding you back. And, and let me just say on this too, I don't know why I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk on this, but I feel like I need to. Sometimes the shame that we feel is not even something we have done, but something that was done to us. And we're carrying around the shame of what has been done to us as if we're guilty for it. And because of that, it has restricted us. And it has kept us from getting real with Jesus. And it's kept us from really pursuing him like we want to pursue him. And so we have to be brave like this woman and have to set aside our shame. She knew. She knew what was wrong. She knew what her problem was. But she's like, i got to get to him anyways. And some of us in this room, we got to put our problem to the side and just come to Jesus and say, Lord, you know what my issue is. And I need you anyways. She had to come out of her secrecy. This woman had to live in the shadows, the shadows of society. 
To violate Levitical law could mean that she could be killed, stoned to death in an instant. To live in secrecy is all that she knew for the past 12 years. If she got caught where she was not supposed to be, she could lose her life. But guess what she was? She was desperate. (laughs) She was desperate. And she came to Jesus out of her desperation. Her faith, this woman's faith was louder than her fear. We have a lot of fear in our life sometimes that keeps us from doing the things we want to do. We have a lot of fear in our life that keeps us from engaging the way we want to engage. We have a lot of fear in our life that keeps us from really getting serious with the Lord. And, and here's what we got to do. we got to make sure that our faith is always louder than our fear, that it always rises above. And the last thing she had to push through was her seclusion. She was isolated from her family. She was isolated from her friends and her, and her community. Her disease made her an outsider. There's a lot of people probably in this room that feel like an outsider sometimes. Man, if people just knew about me, they knew what I've done. You know how hard it is to walk into a church knowing that you're guilty? You know how hard that is? To walk into a place that the perception is everybody here is perfect, and you're walking in full of shame? I applaud you in this room right now if you've come in here with a heavy burden and a heavy load feeling like you're full of shame because everybody in here pretends like we have it together. But can I be honest with you? We don't. We don't. I just want to be clear with you. The cross has outed all of us. The cross stands as a monument of our failure. It is a monument that we don't have it together. It's a monument that we fall short. It's a monument that we couldn't do it without his help. So everybody in this room is people in need of repair. And so don't come in here like you, you, you don't belong, like you don't fit, because I got issues and, and everybody else in here has got it all together. No, we all broken. We all falling apart. And this woman had to move out of seclusion to come into a public place. To put her faith in, uh, to make her faith public also made her problem public. Think about that. Many people don't want to make their faith public because then they'll have to make their problem public. I, I heard a pastor one time being real honest. He says, I've preached many messages where I needed to respond to my own altar call, but because of my position, I felt like I couldn't. He said, I could preach a message on marriage and knowing my marriage is in trouble. But because I'm the pastor, I couldn't respond to my own altar call because I was worried what people would think of me if I responded to an altar call about a broken marriage. And so many people refuse to come out of secrecy and seclusion because they're afraid. What will people think of me if I admit I have this problem? Listen, don't let that shame and that secrecy and that thing that you're holding on to be the one thing that keeps you from getting to Jesus. Throw it aside. So while both these people are coming to Jesus for two totally different reasons, they have one thing in common, and that is he is their last resort. He is their last resort. I have no other options, Jesus. You're my last resort. Can I just I want to stay on this too? You don't have to make Jesus your last resort, by the way. You, you, don't, you don't have to spend it all, do it all, engage in it all before you come to Jesus. You can come to Jesus right now as you are, okay? You, you're completely able to come to him. He's approachable anytime, not just when you're at the end of your rope. You can come to him right now at this very moment. You don't have to wait. And so anyways, here we go. Look at the interaction. This, this, I love this part. Y'all got to hang with me. Here we go. 
Mark chapter 5. I love this interaction between Jesus and this woman. Because in verse 27, it says she walked in and she touched the hem of his garment. She says, I can just touch but his clothes. I will be whole. And what happened? Well, the moment she touched his clothes, she felt the cure go in her body. Can you imagine what it must have been like for this woman for 12 years to, to know she's had this disease and in a moment she's made whole? And so in this moment she's made whole. Immediately she knew she was healed and immediately he knew he'd been touched. And what Jesus does in this moment is very intentional because here's what happens. He could have kept walking. He could have kept walking. But he stopped. Imagine this woman living in secrecy for 12 years, living in isolation outside of the community for 12 years, and she touches his garment, and she gets made whole. Her goal was to slip in and slip out. But then he stops. Can you imagine what she... Why did he stop? What's what's he doing? Because her goal, slip in, slip out. She couldn't be around people. She couldn't be inside the city gates. She couldn't be where she was. She had to live outside the community. She wanted to sneak in, sneak out, get her healing, and go. But he stopped. Why did he stop? You could have kept going. Why are you stopping, Jesus? And the disciples are asking him, what do you mean, who touched me? But in verse 32, something, something came clear. I've never really saw this until recently. As he began to look around about, look what it says. Put 32 up there. He looked around about to see her. <laughs> he knew who touched her. He knew. It was no secret. It was no surprise. He, did, he wasn't, guess, who, who touched me? He said he looked around to see her. Now, still doesn't answer my question why he stopped. She got the healing. He knew who it was. Why did he have to stop? Remember, Jairus has a dying daughter. He's on a mission. Why is he stopping in the middle of his mission to address a woman that he knows who she is? She's got the healing. Hey, he could have kept on going. Everything would have been fine. No problem. No issue. But he stops. (laughs) And this is why. This is what the Lord kind of revealed to me. This is why he stopped. Two things. Two things. He needed this woman to understand that the healing came not from his garment, but from the Savior. Because she could have easily walked away thinking, I just touched his garment and I was healed. No, he wanted her to make sure that she she knew you were healed, not because you touched my clothes, but because you touched me. So so sometimes we can make things so superstitious and so over-religious. I was in Israel in January. Brother Griggs, you might have seen this, I don't know. But we went to two different places that has been suspected that could have been the, the burial place of where Jesus was buried. One was called the Garden Tomb. I don't remember the other one. I personally believe it's the Garden Tomb. Man, it just felt like the place. If, if a place could feel like something, that's, that place felt like it. The other place, again, I don't remember the name of it, but it, it was this big church that was built on top of this site. And the thing about Israel is every time there's some kind of significant historical religious place, they build a church right on top of it. And and in this place, there's there's this church built right on top of it. And inside this church, right in the front doors, there's this big stone on the floor. It's called the burial stone. It's where they believe that Jesus, when he was taken off the cross and before he was being buried, they prepared his body on this stone for burial. Now, 
I'm a people watcher. And I felt very uncomfortable in this church, I'll be honest with you. It just didn't feel right. And so I just kind of hung out in the front, and I just watched people. And there's a man that come in there with a big old gallon-sized bag of necklaces. And he got these necklaces, and he dumped them out on this stone and began to move them around on this stone. And I'm looking at him. I'm thinking, what in the world is he doing? And then it dawned on me. He's packaging things back up. He's going to go to his necklace stand. He's going to start selling these necklaces and tell everybody, this touched the place where Jesus was prepared for burial. And he's going to charge money for what these things have touched. As if it's going to do anything. Listen, I, I get so mad at these preachers on TV that say, send me $19.99. I'm going to send you this prayer handkerchief that I prayed over. I want to drop kick the TV. How dare they try to sell a blessing? And I just get so frustrated with pastors and preachers. And I'm not trying to throw insult to anybody in here that's got your prayer handkerchief with you right now. And you try to shove it back in your pocket. <laughs> Believe me, I'm not trying to insult nobody. But what was so important in this moment, why Jesus stopped and turned around and he wanted this woman to make sure that she knew it wasn't some immaterial thing that touched you and made you whole. It was me that made you whole. And the second reason was this. She needed to understand she was not healed from her touch, but by her faith. Not her touch, but her faith made her whole. Faith is personal. Faith has a face. Jesus wanted her to look, her, look each other in the eye and say, Woman, thy faith has made you whole. Your faith, has, your faith has a face. Your faith is in a real, historical, resurrected Jesus. Now listen, I told you there's two places in Israel right now where they think it could have been where he was buried. But here's the thing. You can go to either one of those places and look in either one of those tombs, and I guarantee you he ain't in either one of them. Okay? Your faith is not in some foreign idea or ideology or religious exercise. It's not in some kind of superstition. Your faith has a face. And his name is Jesus. And you can trust him. And you can put your faith in him. And this woman had to realize it wasn't your touch that made you whole. It was your faith that made you whole. It was personal. See, we can be very, very superstitious sometimes and wear cross necklaces and have fancy bumper stickers and wear Christian t-shirts and have fancy Bibles and all kind of stuff. But none of that's going to get you closer to Jesus. None of it. You know what gets you closer to Jesus? Faith. Faith. And in this moment, y'all still tracking with me? Y'all still with me? In this moment, it seems so brief. Jairus comes to Jesus. Jesus, I got a need. My little girl's dying. They start walking. All of a sudden, a woman comes into the picture. He stops, addresses her. And all this seems kind of brief in a timeline. But enough time has now passed that there's an interruption Verse 35, he's addressing the woman, daughter, thy faith has made thee whole, go in peace. Verse 35, while he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, thy daughter is dead. (laughs) Your daughter is dead. Why troublest thy master any further? Now, listen, I can't, I can only imagine what this daddy felt. And you just came to the one person you thought could help. The one man you thought could could bring the healing you've been looking for for your little girl. And now you just get the news. Jairus, your daughter's dead. What would you have felt like, Dad? 
What would you have been feeling in that moment, Dad? I guarantee you I'd have been angry. Sometimes I feel like God doesn't answer fast enough. You ever feel like that? God, you never show up when I want you. You got to be on my schedule. (laughs) You got to do it my way. I can imagine he felt angry. Imagine this. Now picture this, folks. You just watched someone else get the miracle you were hoping for for your little girl. She just got healed, and that's what you wanted for your little girl. Now you got the news your little girl is dead. Well, I've been angry. If these people wouldn't have slowed us down, if this woman, where'd this woman come from? If she wouldn't have showed up, oh, I'd have been hot. This random woman, don't even know her name, desperately, I wanted it for my daughter, and this woman came in and took it. I've, I've been there. I've watched other people get the healing that I wanted for my own loved ones. Have you? It's hard to watch sometimes. Maybe, maybe in this moment his faith is immediately deflated. Remember, he had to give up a lot. He had to give up his pride, his prestige, his piety. He had to give it up all to come to Jesus and fall at his feet. It was a huge move for, for Jairus to come to Jesus in this moment. Now he's being told your daughter is dead. He was an important man in the community. Do you know what I sacrificed to get to you, Jesus? Do you know what I did to get to you? For what? Why? Has there been moments in your life where you've prayed something for something so desperately and it didn't happen? What happened to your faith? What happened to your faith in that moment? It got a little bruised, didn't it? Maybe it got a little weak. I can imagine this man's faith just kind of deflated on him. Maybe, maybe he felt a little guilt and sadness. Imagine you're in this man's shoes, and I sought out the only person I thought could help. You know how much I would blame myself? Because context, it seems to seem like this little girl wouldn't just all of a sudden got sick and then she's dying. It seems like this was a disease that's been taking place for a while. And she's just gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. Now, now here's the thing. If I was dad, I would have been thinking, why didn't I come sooner? Why didn't I come earlier? Why did I wait to the last minute? Why did I have to try everything before coming to Jesus? I can just picture himself beating himself up. Just why did I wait so long? Man, you don't want to be the person in this room who says that. Why did I wait so long? And I can just picture him just beating himself up with guilt and shame and anger. But whatever he felt, we do know this. He did feel afraid because what does Jesus say? In verse 36, verse 36, look what he says to Jairus. He says, be not afraid, only believe. (laughs) I love this simple little statement. This verb believe here, the way Jesus says it is a continuous present action. In other words, he's saying, Jairus, the same belief you came to me with in the very front of this thing, you need to maintain it right now. How you came to me in faith, you need to hold on to that faith. Are you with me, Jairus? <laughs> I love how the only remedy to sadness, to anger, to shame, to grief, to all these emotions that Jairus was feeling, all that combined, the only remedy was belief. Just belief. Just have faith. <laughs> now, now look at this. Jairus' faith is at a crossroads right now. His friend who just came from his house 
is saying, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Jesus is saying, don't worry, have faith. <laughs> You're Jairus. Your friend, Jairus, I was just at your house. Your daughter's dead. Jesus, don't worry, have faith. Have you ever been in a predicament where the evidence was so much greater than your faith? He's saying, Jairus, have faith. He said, but did you just hear? He came from my house. She's dead. Just believe. But the, the evidence is so much greater. Do you see what the evidence is? The evidence goes against everything you're saying, Jesus. Don't worry, just have faith. Have you, maybe this is something you can relate to. Have you ever looked at your bills versus your bank account? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got you now, huh? And you're looking over here, and you're like, Lord, there's an extra comma on this side, and there ain't no commas on this side. <laughs> and he says, hey, just don't worry, just believe. But the evidence suggests otherwise, Jesus. Don't worry, just believe. There's a whole lot more in this category than this category. Don't worry, just believe. You know, it takes real faith to believe when the evidence goes against you. It takes real faith, hearty faith, to believe when everything speaks against it. And so in this moment, Jairus is in a dilemma. Do I believe my friend who just said she's dead, or do I believe Jesus who says just believe? Okay, Jesus, let's go. And he takes Jesus to his house. That's a huge step of faith, by the way. A huge step of faith. Because everything he knows is my daughter is dead. Jesus says believe, but he, she's dead. And he, but he says believe, I'm just going to believe. And so he's walking all the way to his house. And then it says as they get to the house, there's already people mourning at the house. See, they didn't have refrigeration back in that day. And so when people died, they tried to bury them pretty quickly. Because I don't know what you, if you know what happens to dead bodies in the heat. Not pretty. And so they're, they're moving on this thing. And so they get mourners and they get people in there and they're crying. They pay people, professional mourners, to come and just woo And they cry and they have flute players. I'm not making, they have professional flute, flute players who play mourning flutes and they're in there playing their flutes and they're crying and hollering. Can you imagine being Jairus from a distance? You're hearing this take place in your house and knowing it's for your daughter? Just believe. The evidence is getting worse. Just believe. Just have faith. You just tell me to have faith. And as he gets closer, it gets louder and louder and louder. And he walks into the house. And Jesus questions him and says, Why are y'all weeping? The damsel is not dead but asleep. And they laugh at him. And Jesus kicks them all out of the house. <laughs> I love that part because here's what happens. Their disbelief disqualified them from witnessing the miracle. You don't believe me? Get out of here. Go. And he kicked him out of the house. And he brings in Peter, James, and John, and dad and mom. They come into the daughter's room. And he says to this little girl, Talitha Kumai. Now, in this moment, I have a question for you. What's harder for you to believe? That Jesus can heal your sick daughter or that Jesus can bring your dead daughter back to life? What's harder to believe? Now, I believe what Jesus did was intentional. Much like showing up to Lazarus' grave four days later. I believe what he's doing is, is making a point here. He's saying, listen, Jairus, I know it was a bold move for you to come to me in faith, ask me to heal your little girl, but I want you to know what I can do is much greater than what you think I can do. 
I can move in ways you don't even expect. See, sometimes we put God in a box and think that only he can move in certain ways. See, God is not the, the God of small attainable things. God is the God of big impossible things. And he's making a clear point to Jairus right now. Jairus, you come after me to do a miracle. Watch this. <laughs> Watch this. Buckle up, buttercup. You're about to witness something you ain't never seen before. I think what Jesus did was so intentional. He can move mountains. He can shake heaven just for you. And just Jesus looks at this little girl and says, Talitha Kumai, arise, damsel. And she awakens a 12-year-old girl back on her feet. Now, I'm not big in numerology. Numerology is study of, of numbers in the Bible and how numbers mean things in the Bible. Sometimes you can go down a rabbit hole and it's, it's kind of weird. But I, the, the Bible does have numbers that mean things at times. Absolutely. The number 12 is repeated twice in this story. The woman had a blood disease for 12 years. The little girl was 12 years of age. I believe that's very intentional why it was put there. The number 12 in the Bible stands for faith. (laughs) Number 12 is faith. There were 12 sons of Jacob that formed the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus chose 12 disciples. And in this story, we have a woman with a disease for 12 years. We have a little girl who's 12 years of age. And here's what I want us to grasp this morning. By faith, the woman touched his garment. By faith, the man sought his help. One received what they're looking for through a word. The other received it through a touch. My question is, if a little faith is enough to heal an impossible disease, if a little faith is enough to bust open the doors of death, how much are we missing out on because we don't have a little faith how much do we quit on because we see the evidence and we say God there's just no way and we give up on our faith because of what the evidence suggests but here's the Lord standing and he's saying I know what you're seeing I see past that that's not a that's not an obstacle for me that ain't nothing just believe I wonder in this room how many people have been standing and staring at the evidence and thinking this is impossible. And instead of pressing in with faith, even though it's hard, even though it don't make sense. Can I say faith don't make sense sometimes? It just don't make sense. Substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that's what faith is. It doesn't make sense. I just, but you've got to press in anyways. <laughs> Maybe... Maybe if you just had a little more faith. Now, let me just speak on this for just a moment. Because both these situations deal with somebody who's dying and another person who has a disease. And I just want to address this for just a second because I've been there. Okay, I've been in those shoes where you're praying for something. Maybe not even for yourself, but for somebody else. Somebody you see battling a disease. Somebody you see dying. And you're praying, and you're praying hard. Maybe you've been having issues with having a baby. And, and you finally got the news you're pregnant. And you're praying, God, let this one come to, let, let this one be it. And then that little life is gone. You know how much of a gut-wrenching attack that is to faith? How much that hurts people's faith? You know how hard it is to pray for somebody? And to see them draw their last breath, even though you've prayed. I mean, you pray to the point your heart hurts. You've prayed so hard. And you prayed so sincerely. And you God, I need you, God. And you see, anyways, they, they die anyways. And you know how hard it is to a person's faith to witness and to see? Can, can I just speak into that? My little boy, last night, I'm laying in my bed. I got my Bible open and I'm reading. My little boy walks in. He has a tear on his cheek. I'm not making this up. 
and I, my, my wife is the more since, like, intimate one, the more sweet one. <laughs> he didn't want to tell me. And that, that kind of speaks to me. I need to be a little more sincere and kind to my little boy. But he, he came to Tracy, and Tracy said, what, what's, what's going on, my buddy? He said, I've just been thinking about all the people in our family that died. Like, out of the blue. I don't know where. He starts thinking, you know, it's hard. It's hard to pray for people and see them die anyways. And you might be thinking, Brother Andrew, you don't understand. I have prayed in faith, and I have sought God in faith, and it seems like it never works. And, and my faith is a little bruised and broken right now. And so you're saying, have a little faith, but you don't understand what my faith has been through. Can I just speak into that just for a second? I want, you, I want to let you in on a little secret. This woman who was healed of this blood disease, she eventually did die. And this little girl that was 12 years old that was raised back to life, you know what happened to her? She eventually died. Death is a sad reality of what this world has to offer because of sin. It's a reality. Death will happen. And so my, my challenge and encouragement to you would be maybe... Maybe the thing we should pray for most is, Lord, don't heal my relative, but save my relative. Because even though God may not be always willing to work the miracle of healing in a person's life, he'll be willing to work the miracle of salvation in a person's life if they're willing to receive. And so maybe we should be praying, God, I don't know what your plans are for my uncle. I don't know what your plans are for my mama. But Lord, I just want to make sure she's saved. Lord, save her. I don't know what's going to happen in the next week or two, but God, just save her because I know life is temporary. It's just a drop in the ocean compared to what you have to offer us. And I just want to make sure that I see him again. I want to make sure that they're in heaven with you when they take their last breath. So, Lord, I know it's going to hurt. I know it's going to be painful to watch them go. But, Lord, I just save them, Lord, save them. Maybe that should be our prayer. And so I just want to challenge and encourage you in this room that I know some tough times come where your faith is really battered and bruised. But God is still good. He's still good.